This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. Thanks for tuning in this morning for church at Calvary Bible Church online. We're glad that you're here and I pray that God is redeeming the disruption of these days in your life. One of the ways that God redeems troublesome times is to give peace to his people in the midst of it. And we come in our study in the book of Philippians to the culmination of what Paul suggested we could find in days of trouble, and that is that the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds. Over the last three weeks, we've asked you at home to start to memorize Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. So I'm going to ask you to say it out loud right where you are today. Everybody stand up. I'm seeing you stand up. No, go ahead, stand up. We're going to read Philippians. We're going to recite, if you can, Philippians chapter 4, 4 through 7. I'll start us out, but you say it along right where you are. Ready? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 4 through 7. All right, give yourself a big round of applause, and you may be seated. At least that's what we would be doing if we were all meeting together. But those verses for us lead us to understand where Paul has been heading in this letter to the church at Philippi while he's in the midst of prison. And it's a really important conclusion, and we have never needed peace in our lives more than we need it right now. So I'm so thankful that I get to lead us in this text this morning. You'll remember that as chapter 4 began, Paul used the words of the Philippian church, you're my beloved, you're my prize, my crown, I love you, you're my beloved. He really reinforced to them how much he loved them. And then he begins our text for this morning. Before we get to our memory verses, there are two verses that describe a problem that was going on in the church. You're probably not surprised to know that there was a bit of a conflict in the Philippian church, and it's brought to light in the opening of chapter 4. So my goal is that we would look at the way conflict occurred in the Philippian church, learn some lessons about how we solve our problems, and then dig in to this culminating passage on the peace of God. Read with me verse 2. Verse 2, Paul says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Uh, We don't know exactly what was going on between Euodia and Syntyche, except they're not agreeing with each other. And it's a little bit surprising to learn that Paul would put this right out there. I don't think he's trying to publicly shame them. I think he's just acknowledging that there's some kind of problem in the church at Philippi that he wants to resolve. 
And he wants to lead to resolution of the conflict of these two women. And so we need to note a couple things that are going on here. He says, I entreat you, and I entreat you, Syntyche and Eudia. And one thing we know about both of these women is the way Paul describes them is they're both believers in Christ. He uses two phrases, I entreat you to agree in the Lord. There's no possible way these women could agree together in the Lord if they both didn't know Jesus. So Paul just affirms, you both know the Lord. And your names are written down in the book of life. The book in whose names are written those who before the foundation of the world were brought into the family of God and who will live forever in eternity. These two women, although they're not seeing eye to eye, are both Christians. Their names are written in the book of life. And there's more that Paul describes about them. He says, they're my helpers, and they have labored side by side with me in the gospel. They are together with Paul, equal partners with him in the ministry. I love the way Paul describes that. Here are two people who are not getting along, but he thinks of them as people he loves, he's worked with side by side, he's committed to their reconciliation together, and he says of them, you've been faithful partners with me in the work of the ministry. They're leaders with Paul, sort of equal with him. Why is Paul so concerned about helping these two women get whatever it is they're um, not seeing eye to eye on together on the same page. Unity in the church is so important for the glory of God, for the well-being of every member of the church, as well as for the witness of the church. We can look back throughout this entire letter of Philippians, and we can see a recurring theme. In fact, if you have your Bible, turn back with me to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. And there you'll see what Paul said earlier to them about unity and being at peace with one another. He writes there, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or if I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Their unity together, their oneness of mind, their agreement about the things of God were very important to Paul from chapter 1. And then you see it again in chapter 2 and verse 2 where he said, Complete my joy and be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. Paul has been driving since the beginning of this letter to move the church to a kind of spiritual unity that would glorify God, strengthen the believers, and be a witness in the world. So all the world would know that the church was united. But as you probably are aware, none of us are immune from conflict. Conflict happens all the time. And I love that the Bible is so real about this. It is never anticipated in the Bible story that there will not be conflict among people who both love God or who all love God. It's not that there won't be conflict. 
The uniqueness of being followers of Christ is the way in which we solve our conflicts. And so before we get to the peace of God, and by the way, conflict would certainly be an anxiety-causing situation, so Paul's just addressing it. Let's just think about three things that Paul does as he deals with this conflict between Iodia and Syntyche, trying to get them on the same page. He's going to say to them three things, I think. Number one, he's going to say to them that love and equality are realities in the body of Christ. In other words, he's already said, I love you both. You're both equal partners with me. I consider each of you as valuable contributors to the work of God in the church at Philippi. And when you solve a conflict, there has to be love and sort of an equality of affirmation to each of the individuals in the party. Usually when we have a conflict, one is going to try to stand in a power position over the other. That's not what Paul does at all here. In fact, you might think that he would pull the apostle card and say, hey, listen, I'm the apostle Paul. You should do this. But he doesn't. He actually uses the word, I entreat you. I I come alongside as a friend and a partner to help support. Because love and equality are affirmed when conflicts are going to get resolved. It's exactly what he does here. We want this always to be a distinguishing feature of our church, that every person at Calvary is loved. And there are no status or statures in the church that are higher than others. There's a sense of equality that we all follow Christ together. It's what the Bible says, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female. We're all at the foot of the cross together. I believe that the church has a very unique role to play in the world today to affirm the love and equality of every human being created in the image of God. This is not in the text, but I want to just take a moment to say, in recent days, we have observed some atrocious acts of hatred and violence in our nation. Over the last several weeks, two African-American men have lost their lives and been thrust into the front of the story of the United States of America, a story of hatred and racial prejudice. And whenever that happens in our world, I believe the church is in the unique position to say this is not as God intends humanity to treat one another. Every human being has been created in the image of God and therefore is endowed with dignity and worth from God, our creator. What we have witnessed in the news is repugnant to us as a church and we stand against it and say, this is not the will of God for humanity. And we are the church that would have to speak and say, We lament that. We're offended by such acts. And we grieve when that occurs. And I believe that the church needs to take the lead to say, we are the ones who, because we know the reconciling work of God in our own lives, 
we are in the best position to say God is a reconciler and we love all people and we affirm all people's worth even when we don't see eye to eye. I couldn't let that pass without referring to that. In any conflict, love and equality have to be affirmed even when there's a difference of opinion. The second thing I think Paul would say about this conflict and the need to resolve it is that honesty and a kind-hearted straightforwardness are always practiced. He doesn't beat around the bush. He goes right to it. He said, there's a problem. We need to fix it. In a moment, he's going to say, let your gentleness be made known to everyone. But he's just truthful about it, and he practices addressing the issue head on. But with kindness. Again, not, not demanding, but entreating them. And quickly, the last point is that uh, a third party is sometimes needed. In the midst of these verses, you will see that Paul says, and I urge you, true companion, help these women. Those words, true companion, is a Greek word that may very well have been a proper name for someone who was known to everybody in this little episode. And Paul's saying, I need you to get with these people these two women, to resolve the conflict. Conflicts are rarely solved by letters, texts, or emails. You're going to have to get in the room together, maybe with a third person, to work it out. And Paul's just saying, it's really urgent that you work this out, that the unity of the church might be restored. That's the backdrop, then, for the key text that we get to, beginning in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord. And then that rest of the text that we've memorized. So from a conflict between two people in the church, Paul moves to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord when? Always. I will say it again, rejoice. Paul is saying, find your joy in the Lord. I'm going to keep saying this again and again. Rejoice in the Lord. And rejoicing is simply finding your joy, finding the greatest pleasure in the Lord. And there are a lot of times that you might not feel like rejoicing if you were having a conflict. This COVID season has created the opportunity for all of us to experience conflict in a greater level because it's a lot harder to communicate by Zoom. It's hard to stay in touch with people the same way you used to when you were in the room. Or it's hard to stay at peace when you're in the same room day after day after day for three months. And so conflict with people can be a cause for maybe not being able to rejoice. The text of Philippians has had a number of instances where you might say, boy, that's a hard situation to rejoice in. Early in chapter 1, Paul referred to the opponents of the church who were attacking it. It's hard to rejoice when you're under attack. Paul was in prison, chained to the wall. It's hard to rejoice when you are in confinement. Um, in chapter 3, somewhere around verse, uh, let's see, verse 20, Paul said our citizenship is in heaven and the Lord's going to come and he's going to transform our lowly 
body, his words for our physical body, which is deteriorating. When your body's sick or when you're not feeling well or when you've had a diagnosis, sometimes it's hard to rejoice. So how is it that Paul can say, rejoice always? You see, wow. It isn't rejoice in your sickness always. It isn't rejoice in your imprisonment always. It isn't rejoice in your conflicts always. It's rejoice in what? There it is. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. That is the unique position of the follower of Christ is not necessarily to rejoice in everything that's happening now, but to rejoice in the one who is in the midst of all those circumstances. And rejoicing of soul happens when the focus of our rejoicing is, in fact, the Lord. It's a beautiful picture, and so I would just say, in order to have a spirit of joy all the time, you have to know the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. So I ask the question, who is the Lord to you? When the Lord is someone to you and you know who he is, rejoicing is, is like a greased skid. It's easier to know how to have joy when you know who the Lord is. And the less you know the Lord, the less you're likely to rejoice in your circumstances. Let me see if I can illustrate it. In the Old Testament, one of the most familiar Psalms is Psalm chapter 1. Um, Psalm chapter 1. How does it begin? Um, it begins this way. Uh, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. That's the happy person. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And therefore, he's like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. Its leaf never withers, and whatever he does prospers. That's the promise of the scriptures, that the happy man, the happy woman, is the one who rejoices in the Lord and meditates on his word, so that the more you know the Lord in whatever circumstance you are, the, the more you're likely to see his presence in the midst of that. And I would just say, in order for us to have deeper joy, we have to have a deeper knowledge of God, so that the more we know him, the more we will be able to rejoice we need a bigger view of God so that we can have more joy. All through the Bible, every, every blessed follower of God, the more they knew him, the more joy they had. Let me see if this rings a bell for you. Um, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Do you remember who said that? He has done great things for me, great things for me. Okay, now you're back to Christmas. That's Mary. When the angel came to talk to her, she wrote a song. And her song was, my soul exalts in God. And then she lists in her song all of the many things that God did for her. Because she knew him well. And she knew the scriptures. And the more you know God, the more you'll be able to rejoice in the Lord. And when you're in the midst of conflict and perhaps anxiety, it is not focusing on those circumstances, but it's 
focusing on who the Lord is. Do you know he's the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the creator and the sustainer? Do you know he always was and he is now and he always will be? He came into our world. He shed his blood to forgive my sins. He cleansed my heart. He renewed my conscience. He gave me a new spirit. He put his spirit within me. He gave me this word. I'm telling you, the more you know about Jesus, the more you want to rejoice But there's something about the difficulty of our experiences that draw our eyes away from Jesus down here and rejoicing can be hard. But if we're going to get to the promise of this passage that the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds, got to learn how to rejoice in the Lord to give thanks to him for everything, to find our joy most deeply in him in the midst of everything. Again, the more you know Jesus, the more rejoicing there will be. I just watched lastly what Paul says here. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say, that's a future tense, I'm, as if to say, I'm going to keep on saying, maybe to myself and to you, Rejoice in the Lord. Find your joy in Jesus. Find your joy in Jesus. I'm going to say it today, and I'm going to say it tomorrow, and I'm going to say it next week, and it's something that I have to keep saying to myself in order for it to take root and really shape my life. Let's all say it out loud together. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And then Paul uses an interesting phrase I've substituted the word gentleness here because I think that's a word that's synonymous. But he said, uh, let your reasonableness or your gentleness be known to everyone. One of the ways to find the peace of God is to be at peace with other people. And so he said, in the church, as you interact as the congregation, we'll apply it to Calvary. As we live together as a community of Christ followers, being fully devoted to loving God and loving others, we're going to seek to be gentle with each other. And I think Paul was gentle here in this text. It's the idea of being reasonable or of being um, forbearing in your spirit, bearing with someone else, of having a gentle spirit. It means you're not quarrelsome, you're not contentious or factious or contrary. Earlier he said, don't grumble and dispute with one another. It's a real contradiction here that those who are rejoicing in the Lord are gentle. And we need that kind of gentleness in the world. And it's because the Lord is near. It was a a glimpse into the future that the Lord's returning, he's coming back. And um, Paul just said, because the Lord is near, this is the way you live. You live in gentleness. In the next verse, he's going to tell us to take our request to God, but he really wants to say here, let your gentleness be known among each other. And now verse 6, but let your prayers be made known to God. Verse 6 is the key verse. Do not be anxious about anything. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, if you're circling in your Bible, I circled these words. Prayer and supplication 
and requests, which are just three synonymous words to say, when you're feeling anxious, go to God. When you're feeling under the weight of the tension in your life, turn to God for help and, and let him hear your prayers. Let people see your gentleness, but let God hear your cries for help in everything. I trace this word anxious because I know during the COVID season, all of us have a heightened level of anxiety. And um, I know that Paul himself felt anxiety. And out of his mouth, by the Holy Spirit, came these words, don't be anxious about anything. Sounds like Jesus when he said, why do you worry about this or that? Don't you know you have a Father in heaven who loves you? Paul actually said in an earlier part of the book, I want to send Epaphroditus to you so that he will help you in your life and I will be less anxious because Epaphroditus is with you. He actually said, I'm going to be less anxious if Epaphroditus gets to you. So I know that Paul had occasions of at least concern in his soul. But the remedy is described here, a pattern of behavior that's going to culminate in the next verse for the gift that God wants to give us in every season, the peace of God. It begins with rejoicing in the Lord, being gentle with people, and being a person of prayer, bringing your requests to God. We've often said this, but praying, bringing supplication, or just making your request known to God are, are the ways in which we simply talk to God and bring him our requests. That's all Paul's saying. Talk to God. You can talk to God right where you are today. You can call out to him. And the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And he wants to draw near to us as we draw near to him. And we draw near to him by praying. So this is sort of a conditional statement. Don't be anxious, but do this. In everything, pray. We can't leave this without saying that one of the things that develops our prayer life is thanksgiving. Praying with a thankful heart. Not demanding, not going before him with any kind of arrogance to say, you owe this to me, but knowing who he is, the, the Jesus we rejoice in who gave his life for us, we come before him humbly. We come before him thankfully. We say, Lord, hear my prayer today. And if you're not sure how to pray, one of the ways that you could start your prayer life is just get a journal and begin to make a list, one through five every day, and list five things that you're thankful for. And that thanksgiving in your heart will catalyze your prayer life and it will begin to reduce your anxiety when you know I've given God my problems. First Peter says, you can cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. So here's our text. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now verse 7. And the 
peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the promise conditioned on the prior prerequisites that God will give you his peace when you least expect it. A kind of peace that will guard your heart and your mind, what you're thinking and what you're feeling. And this word guard is a military term. It's the idea of there being soldiers to protect the city so that it's impenetrable. And that's what we have when we say the Lord is our refuge. He guards our life. He watches over us. He's near to us. God's peace guards our heart. I was just modifying phrase of the peace of God, and it says it simply can't be explained. It goes beyond all human understanding. It's what God gives in the moment of our greatest need when we don't know what the answer is going to be, but we just know God has an answer. And we don't have to know what the answer is necessarily because we know we belong to him. And sometimes when we, we rejoice in the Lord and we bring our prayers before him, we can rest in him. I've experienced what it is to have the peace of God in the most unlikely times. When I was a young pastor, I remember doing a memorial service for my doctor who had died. And he left behind a beautiful wife and five beautiful daughters and he died at an early age, and I remember being a young pastor knowing that tonight at 7 o'clock, I was going to have to speak at a memorial service, and those six women were going to be on the front row before me. I literally went to my office again and again throughout the day to weep on behalf of Bob and his family. I didn't know how I would ever stand before the full congregation and that family and declare the hope of God. I can only tell you that one of the highlights of my pastoral ministry is standing up that night and sensing the peace of God, guarding my heart and keeping my mind. I've had a lot of experiences in my life around the church with conflict or challenge or opposition or trial or suffering where I've had to say, I don't know how to make it. But Lord, without you, I can't go on. My joy is in you, and I bring these requests to you, and the peace of God, I promise you, comes like a calming storm. That's what Jesus promised. That's what Paul promises here, to be guarded. This is our season to experience the peace of God, and I'm praying that for you today. This has always been a scriptural promise in the Bible, all the way back in Isaiah chapter 26. There, Isaiah said, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That, that's what God promises to do, to keep our hearts at peace with him. And then David said in Psalm 16, I have set the Lord always before me and because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. That's David's promise. That's Isaiah's promise. Here's Paul's promise. It's Jesus' promise that my peace I give to you, not like the world gives. I give you my peace. Don't let your heart be troubled. I don't know how God is redeeming these days for you, but what I've prayed for you this week is that your heart would be filled with the peace of God, that you would know his abiding presence, and you would know how great Jesus Christ is to love you and give himself for you so that in him you would have deep joy. That's what I pray for you today.
Let's bow our heads together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege of looking at the scriptures this morning, of remembering the truths that were promised in your word to us. And now I pray with a deeper understanding of what you have written, you will awaken our hearts to believe it and to trust in you with all of our heart. I pray that it will be true of us, that rejoicing will be in our heart even in times of difficulty. And that a a faith-filled prayer of God, here are my requests, will be our everyday experience. And I pray that the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray together. And everybody said, amen.